Good evening, church family, and good evening to those who are joining us online. We miss you guys. Hope to see you this Easter, if you can make it out. Uh, Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. I'm so thankful for the Word of God, and I'm thankful that our doors are open, that we get to worship together. I'm thankful that as we turn to Luke 22, we're turning into a book that is alive, right? We know that in Hebrews chapter 4, the Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And the, the word of God also says that nothing is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and naked to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so as we open to Luke 22, we know that we're not just reading God's word, God's word is reading us. And I want us to have that humility of heart for the word of God to read us because like you, We have the temptation, like me, we have the temptation, because it's so familiar, to be calloused to the Word of God. Remember the sweetness of when we fell in love with Jesus and we're just consuming His Word while years pass and sometimes we can get calloused to God's love, God's Word. Our heart this evening, this whole Passion Week, is that our hearts would be softened once again. That as we consider Jesus, that our hearts would break as we look at Him, identify with Him, sympathize with Him. And not only that, not that we would just leave with a sentiment, but that we would leave with a heart of sanctification. So we read here in Luke chapter 22, let's read uh, starting from verses 39 all the way to 46. This is Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. We'll read this, we'll pray, I'll outline our time, and then towards the evening, towards the later part of the evening, we're also going to take communion with Pastor Rob. So we have a full night, and I'm excited to see what God wants to do. Let's honor him by reading the word and then entering into a time of prayer. Luke 22, started in verse 39 to 46, I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Another word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the authority and the power of your word, and we submit ourselves under it. We ask that we would see Jesus that our hearts would be softened, that we would have eyes of understanding, spiritual understanding of your heart for us. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just leave with sentiment over this garden scene, but with a deep sense of sanctification and a passion for your will to be done in and through our lives. We ask that the good teacher, the Holy Spirit, would fill us and disciple us and make us more and more into your image, your likeness. And for all your glory, Lord, we say these things and we pray these things in your name and we say... Amen. Amen. Our aim this evening, like I mentioned before, is to honor Jesus as we consider him in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
We want to allow his word to transform us into his likeness. And here's the temptation, like I said. Because we've heard this story over and over and over again, we get calloused. But I pray that we are like that woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5. You know, she had an ailment for 12 years and she disguises herself and she comes up behind Jesus and she touches the hem of his garment and she's made well. And Jesus, looking around to his disciples, says, who touched me? And, and the disciples say, what do you, you see this multitude? And you say, who touched me? But Jesus knew that someone had touched him. And this tells me a, a lot about being around Jesus, being with Jesus, that it's possible to be rubbing shoulders with Jesus and still not really touch him. It's possible to be within his voice, to hear his voice and still not really be changed by him. And because this, this story is so familiar all the way from the Sunday school all the way until now, we can have a hardened heart. But let us be like that woman by faith to approach Jesus and not just touch the hem of his garment, but touch his heart. So let us be softened, let us be humbled in God's word, and let us learn what this means for our lives. When I was reading this passage, I was reminded of the humanity of Jesus. We know that he was fully God and fully man, but we forget that he actually felt pain. He felt sorrow. In our story, he feels deep agony. And I I appreciate this passage because it reminds me that Jesus was the God-man. He is the God-man, and he's the man's man. Man, for a man to undergo such pain, such agony, and still come out, and in the book of Hebrews say, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, that made me want to fall in love with him and follow him even more. So I want us to see his humanity. I want us to consider him. I want his word to impact our hearts. We want the Holy Spirit to teach us. And in order to accomplish our goal of honoring Jesus, I want to talk about four different things. Then we'll talk about some application, and then we'll go into a time of communion and prayer. So I want to talk about four different things. The first thing I want to talk about is Christ's choice. Christ's choice. The second thing in our layout is Christ's compassion. Then his cry and his commitment. So four C's, Christ's choice, compassion, cry and commitment. Let's start with number one, Christ's choice. Read with me again, Luke 22, verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. The first thing we see in Christ's choice is that Jesus chose to be in the garden where he knew Judas Judas would meet him. He had Multiple options of what he could do, but he chose to be in the exact same spot as he was accustomed, knowing full well that Judas was going to meet him and betray him with a kiss. You think, what were Jesus's other options? Well, he could have picked a different spot. He could have hid. He could have laid a trap for Judas, right? Hey, Peter, hey, we're going to trap Judas and we're going to see if he's really one of us, right? But Jesus, knowing full well what was going to happen, he still chose, for the sake of love of the Father and for all humanity, Jesus chose this garden, knowing full well what was about to transpire. What a man. You see, Jesus wasn't oblivious as to what the Father had in mind. Even from a young child, remember in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, he says to Mother Mary when he was gone for a couple of days, I must be about my Father's business. Jesus knew the will of the Father. He knew full well what was about to happen in the next couple of days, and still he chose to be in this garden. He wasn't oblivious as to what the Father had in mind. Jesus knew full well that he was about to be ripped to shreds, and he still made a decision to be in that garden. What love, what authority. 
The second thing that Jesus chose, that Jesus chose a garden, which is really interesting when you think about Bible study. History began in a garden, right, in Genesis, and the Bible says that it will end in a garden, in the new heaven and the new earth. And this garden scene reminds us that Jesus is the last Adam, right? The first Adam is a picture of sin and selfishness, according to Genesis chapter 3. We know Jesus, the last Adam, according to Romans chapter 5, he's, he's a picture of sa- surrender and sacrifice. We see that what was forfeited in the Garden of Eden is now going to be redeemed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the green light's going to be hit, and Jesus would be on his way to the road, to the cross of Calvary. We see that this wasn't just a specific garden that reminds us of the difference between Adam and the last Adam, Jesus, but it was the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means olive press. Who likes olive oil here? Oh, me too. Yeah, put olive oil on everything. But also, I mean, I've just been uh, introduced to avocado oil, which is also a great alternative. But here, Gethsemane means olive press. And no doubt, it's a picture of what Jesus was experiencing in the garden ultimately and ultimately on the cross of Calvary. Just as olives needed to be pressed and squished and pounded for the sweetness of the oil to come, so too Jesus would be beaten, tormented, pushed, pressed in order for the sweetness of his blood to redeem all of humanity. Jesus chose this garden knowing full well of the implications of what was about to happen. Jesus also chose Peter, James, and John to be with him in this vicinity. Now, for further Bible study, you'll have to look at the different gospel accounts of what's happening. We know that Judas has already left, right? He's, he's conspiring already. He has his band of troops to arrest Jesus. But Jesus brings his disciples and he selects three of them actually to go closer with him about a stone's throw away. And, and, and he chooses Peter, James, and John. And, and this was kind of Jesus's inner circle. And this is an interesting thing that Jesus chose Peter, James, and John for a couple of different miracles that only they were able to witness. And I think there's a big picture here. And so w- with me for a second, bear with me as I try to explain this. The first time we, we see kind of the miracle take place with Peter, James, and John and Jesus is in Mark chapter 5, where Jairus has a daughter who is sick, right? And so Jesus is going with Jairus to heal the daughter, and people said, hey, Jairus, your, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. But he still follows Jesus, and Jesus says, the girl is not dead, but she's sleeping. And, and people are mocking. So he casts out the mockers, and he brings Peter, James, and John, and he heals the girl. He says, little girl, arise, and she resurrects from the dead. And he says, give her something to eat. In that story, we see that Jesus was showing Peter, James, and John that he had the authority over death. And he had the authority of resurrection power. Another instance where Peter, James, and John are witnessing a miracle is on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Jesus shows his deity. He's glorified temporarily in this section of scripture. And, and Peter's like, it's good for us to be here. Let's, let's, let's build these, these little tabernacles of worship. And then all of a sudden, the, the skies rumble and they hear God's voice. This is my beloved son, hear him. And in that instance, Jesus shows his full deity, the glory of who he is to Peter, James, and John. 
now in the garden, Peter, James, and John now have the opportunity to see not only his authority, not just his divinity, his deity, but his humanity. As Jesus is brought to his knees in anguish of soul, and, he, and, and they're witnessing the great drops of blood, sweating from his brow, falling to the ground. We see that Peter, James, and John, they saw the full scope of his authority over his deity and now his humanity. And maybe a fuller picture, as we bring these two stories together, not only is Jesus the authority over death and resurrection power, not only is he the glorified beloved son in whom God is well pleased that we should hear him, but now in the story of the Gethsemane, we see these two stories coming together, that full glory, full glory only comes through death and resurrection power. Jesus is choosing these things to teach us a lot about what it is to be great in God's kingdom. And Jesus had a lot to say about being great in his kingdom. He said, if you want to be great, you must become low, be a servant. You want to be fruitful, you want to glorify the Father. He says in John chapter 12, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it stays alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. So Jesus has a lot to say of what it is to be great. And we see Jesus not just saying this is how to be great, but he's showing them how to be great. It's in humility, in vulnerability, it's in surrender. Peter, James, and John, yes, they were falling asleep a couple of times, but they got a witness. Jesus' full humanity as he suffered. So we see that Christ had a choice. He could have chosen any other garden, but he chose Gethsemane, that olive press. He chose Peter, James, and John, and all these things are happening according to his plan. This wasn't an accident. Jesus chose these guys. Jesus chose this. Jesus chose this garden for the sake of love. Ultimately, love for the Father and love for us. So we see that Christ had a choice. The second thing we want to see is Christ's compassion. Christ's compassion. How do we see Christ being compassionate in this Well, Jesus' compassion is seen in his consideration and thoughtfulness for his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to take on the full weight of God's wrath upon his shoulders. Yet he's thinking of his disciples. What does he say? He says to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He could have said, hey, pray for me because this is going to be hard. No, Jesus is considering them. He's saying, hey, you pray that you may not enter into temptation. Can can you believe it? (laughs) He was about to suffer the most excruciating death, yet he's still thinking of others. And and that's not uncommon for Jesus because we, we remember on the cross as he's hanging there, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Christ's compassion is seen in his consideration and thoughtfulness of his disciples. It reminds me of just how much he thinks of us, how much... God thinks of us. In in this cross-reference, you can write this down, Psalm 139, Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18. The psalmist writes, How precious also are your thoughts towards me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. Christ, God, he's always thinking of us. Even in his deepest, darkest valley, in the agony of, of, of Gethsemane, he's thinking of us. He's thinking of his disciples. I love that. Even on arguably one of the hardest days of Jesus' earthly life, he was others-minded. I love reading the Gospel of Matthew and his account. 
Jesus says something in, in, that Matthew records. Jesus describes his, the state of his soul to be exceedingly sorrowful. So think of your worst day that just broke you and then times that by 100. And that's probably a little bit about, of what Jesus was feeling. Man, can you imagine the depth of agony? Yet Jesus wasn't selfish. He was others-minded. Jesus was about to take on the full weight of God's wrath upon himself, and yet he still had his disciples' best interests in mind. His compassion. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Interesting. Jesus, you could have said, watch and pray, because... Things are about to get crazy, but he's, he's looking out for their spiritual well-being. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation or that you may not fall into temptation. We, then we have to ask ourselves, what temptations may Christ, might Christ have been referring to? It's interesting that he says this. What, what temptations did Christ have in mind for them? Maybe it was to deny. Peter fell into that temptation. He denied Jesus three times. Maybe it was the temptation and the sin to fall into doubt. Was he really Christ? Is he really the Messiah? I'm not really sure now. Things didn't go according to our plan. Maybe it was disappointment. I thought he was going to overthrow Rome. He's dying on the cross. Maybe it was the demand to keep Christ for themselves and not to share him for the sake of the world. Jesus, in his compassion for his disciples' well-being, was still teaching them that the way out of temptation is by watching and praying. Man, he had such sorrow of heart, yet he was still thinking about others. And that was Jesus' example. He was telling them to watch and pray, and he goes and he watches and he prays. And I love that Jesus leads by patient example. Jesus had to do this three times, and we'll talk about his consistency later on. But Jesus was trying to prepare them for the temptations that they would inevitably face. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Even in his darkest night, he was, his, he was others-minded. So we see that he had a choice. We see his compassion. I want to take the bulk of our time to look at Christ's cry, his cry. His cry really is the secret to Christianity, those seven words, not my will, but yours be done. What's the secret to Christianity? You give up your will in exchange for his better will. I love that song, Better is His Way. Christ's cry, he says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I love David Guzik's commentary on this. He says, a sinless man battled Satan, sin, self, and temptation in the Garden of Eden and lost by saying, my will, not yours be done. And the loss impacted all of mankind. The second sinless man, Jesus, battled Satan, sin, and self, and temptation in another garden, and won by saying, not my will, but yours be done. And its impact touches people from every tribe and tongue. Man. Notice his cry, but also notice his posture of his cry. He's kneeling down. A picture of humility, vulnerability, weakness. In another gospel account, it says that he prostrated himself, so he's face down on the ground here. A picture of lowliness, no doubt, of deep anguish. Have you ever had that day that you just can't get out of bed? A little bit about what Jesus was feeling. 
He's crying. He's kneeling down, a posture of humility, vulnerability, and anguish. And, 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 I, and I love this about Jesus because he's teaching us what it is to suffer and to suffer well. There's a suffering that we'll experience and, it, and it, we can just kind of go with the flow and, and medicate with all sorts of worldly things, but there's a godly suffering and we can suffer well through surrender, by getting on our knees in prayer, by prostrating ourselves and receiving that grace. His cry, not my will, but your will be done. He's on his knees, he's on his face crying out. And notice what he says in his cry. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. What does this cup represent? Well, this, this helps us understand why Jesus used the figure of a cup. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, a cup is a powerful picture of the wrath and judgment of God. Write down these cross references that will be on the board here. Psalm 75, 8, Isaiah 51, 17, and Jeremiah 25, 15. I'll quickly read these passages to get us a fuller picture of what Jesus is talking about in this cup. In Psalm 75, verse 8, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs, dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Isaiah 51, 17, speaking of the cup, it says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. And lastly, in Jeremiah 25, 15, For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So this cup is a picture of judgment. It's a, it's a, it's a picture of being an enemy of God. And, and Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that we would not have to drink from that cup. Taking this figurative cup was the source of Jesus' greatest agony on the cross. I love Charles Spurgeon's um, commentary on this. He says, I am never afraid of exaggeration when I speak of what my Lord endured. All hell was distilled into that cup of which our God and Savior Jesus Christ was made to drink. This cup wasn't something that Jesus just took a sip from. No, he drank it. He took on the full wrath of God. This is what he was wrestling with. Father, if there's any other way, take this cup, take your fury away from me. And if it stopped there and Jesus gave up, we would be still dead in our trespasses. But I'm so thankful for the next seven words. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. When we read the book of Hebrews and we see Christ as the perfect sacrifice and his humanity, we see that the author of Hebrews may have been referencing this garden scene as Jesus is crying out in agony. And it helps us to consider when we go through suffering that Christ may be doing something bigger in our lives. And, and write down this cross-reference in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 and 9. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 and 9. The author of Hebrews writes, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
in Jesus' suffering, in his humanity, he was learning obedience by the things which he suffered, which tells us something about when we go through suffering, maybe Christ is trying to teach us obedience in some way, shape, or form. It helps us to have a better perspective when we go through the hardships of life. If Christ suffered, then we as disciples, those who follow him, will suffer too. A disciple is never above the master. Paul said it this way, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, but also in the fellowship of his sufferings. You may be going through suffering. You may be going through deep agony. That could just be life, or it could be God-ordained to teach you more and more about him, more and more about obedience and what faith looks like in living for Jesus. Jesus was in such agony in his cry that an angel was deployed from heaven to minister to him. And he was strengthened a bit, but I love the next verse. It says that even though an angel appeared to him, strengthening him, verse 44 in Luke 22, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Such despair of soul that even a heavenly angel strengthening him didn't alleviate the pain. The man God, the God man Jesus endured such hostility in his own soul. He subjected himself to drink this cup of God's fury for love's sake, for you and for me. If you ever think that Jesus doesn't love you or that you've run out of grace, come back to this passage. Because this passage will tell you and scream at you, you're forever loved. Even after receiving strength from an angel sent from the Father, Jesus was still in agony and he prayed more earnestly, which gives us some insight when we're going through suffering and we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, keep on praying. We can take that encouragement from Psalm 27 towards the end, wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. He was suffering. An angel comes to minister to him, but he's still in deep agony. Luke records, this is the only time Luke records it in the Gospels, that his agony was so much that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling from the ground. And there's a medical condition that some believe that Jesus was, was going through right now. And it occurs in individuals suffering from extreme levels of stress. And when this occurs, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture and the blood goes into the sweat glands and it pours out of all the pores of your body. So not just your forehead, but your armpits, your arms, your legs, where sweat comes out of. Could you imagine being in such agony, such pain, such torment of soul? Jesus says, my soul is exceedingly (laughs) in agony. Can you imagine being in that place and still saying, not my will, but your will be done? What a deep appreciation and adoration we should have for the God-man, the man God, Jesus. I love that this passage encourages us and reminds us that Jesus understands agony, stress, and pain. We don't have a God who is absent from the darkest of valleys. We have a God who walked the darkest of valleys. He did this for us, for love's sake, for love for the Father, for love for us. 
but also to sympathize with our weaknesses, right? According to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he in all points was tempted and still without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Jesus knows the extent, the end of suffering. There's no level of suffering that he is not familiar with. And so he says, come boldly to me, enter boldly into my throne room of grace to get that mercy because he understands, he can sympathize with that pain, that agony of soul. His cry, it changed the world. Not my will, but your will be done. We see his choice, his compassion, his cry. We also want to briefly look at his commitment, his commitment, Christ's commitment. According to Matthew's gospel and his account of this garden story, Jesus prayed this prayer three times. Not just once, not twice, but three times. And he still had the same answer three times. Jesus had three opportunities to change his mind. Jesus had three other chances to disobey, to hide, to run, to stop the cross. But Jesus did not change his mind. His commitment was to the Father's will, motivated by love. And in this wrestling, the asking three times, Jesus has given us a picture of what it looks like to wrestle with the flesh and the spirit, right? Jesus is, is teaching us what it is to wrestle with the flesh and the spirit. Write down this cross-reference, Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Paul writes to the Galatians, the churches in the area of Galatia, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. We see Jesus putting this into practice. He's continually denying the flesh to walk in the spirit. Say, not my will, not my flesh's will, but his will be done. So he's choosing to walk into the spirit. Jesus had three chances to disobey, to run, to hide, to forsake the cross, but he stayed committed to the Father's will. Not only that, but Jesus stayed committed to his disciples. He was showing love and patience because every time he came back after praying, not my will, but your will be done, he came back to his disciples to see if they were still praying (laughs) and they fell asleep. (laughs) Three times they fell asleep. And I love that we don't serve a God who is a one and done God because of the new covenant. Amen. It's not like one mistake. Oh, you can't serve me anymore. No, these three, Peter, James, and John, they would go and change the world for the sake of the gospel. The grace, the mercy, the patience that Jesus was lavishing on them, his commitment towards them to complete the good work that he's begun in in them until the day of Christ Jesus is seen here. I'm thankful we serve a God of first, second, third, and a hundred different chances. The disciples, they couldn't even pray. And and no doubt Jesus was crying out in agony and still they couldn't pray. Luke says they, they, they fell asleep because of sorrow in their soul. But Jesus' commitment to God's will, to his disciples, Jesus was committed to the cross. 
And I read this passage and I say, if Jesus didn't change his mind in the garden or on the cross, he won't change his mind about me. Even when I sin, even when I know to do better and still don't do it, God doesn't change his mind about me. Jesus doesn't change his mind about me. I love that. So we see his commitment. We, we, we bring all these things to mind as we consider Jesus. Again, not to just have a sentiment, but a deep sanctification or a Christ-likeness that it should occur in our hearts. So we see these different things. We want to talk about some application, and then we'll go into a time of communion. But we see that Christ had a choice. Christ's choice. Christ's choice was the Father's will. Christ chose himself, chose to submit himself to the will of the Father. Today, do you or someone you know not choose the will of the Father? What impact might that bring? No doubt disorder, chaos, confusion, bitterness. When we choose our own way apart from Christ's way, we operate in the realm of the flesh, and the flesh always produces corruption, devastation, and death. But what would it look like today to choose the Father's will? What would it look like today for you to choose the Father's will? What impact might that have? Well, the Bible tells us it's the fruits of the Spirit. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, and on and on and so on. It it really is a taste of the kingdom of heaven. That's the fruit of choosing God's way. What might it look like for someone to not submit to the Father's will? Well, it might look like one foot in the world and one foot, one foot in Christ, right? It's, or maybe it's looking like God, giving God boundaries. God, you can do this, but let me choose to do this with my life. We're so good at compartmentalizing spirituality. It's not supposed to be compartmentalized. It's supposed to be your whole life committed to Christ. We see Christ's compassion We see Jesus being others-minded. We can take comfort that Christ always thinks of us. And his thoughts for us are always good. We know this verse in Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Christ has nothing but compassion over you. Because of the righteousness of Jesus over your life, even when you sin, there's no condemnation There's always compassion. We see Christ's cry. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Your will, yours be done. The secret to Christianity is this prayer, not my will, but your will be done. I ask you today, are you willing to pray that prayer? And I ask you tomorrow, are you willing to pray that prayer? And then the next day, are you willing to pray that prayer? I'll be honest, even as a pastor, I struggle with that. I'll give God room, Lord, you can do this, but uh, this is just good too, right? No, but not my will, but your will be done. What does that look like? It looks like repeating Paul's prayer in Galatians 2.20, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no, no, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Maybe you can't even pray that prayer, but can you pray, Lord, make me willing to be willing? Sometimes that's that's where I'm at. (laughs) 
But the Lord in that humility and that honesty always meets me with grace to say, yeah, I'll make you willing. And then you can open up your hands and say, okay, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And we see Christ's commitment number four. Jesus is fully committed. He was fully committed to the will of the Father. He's fully committed to his disciples, which tells us that he's fully committed to us. And so we can trust him in all his ways. Everyone says that we trust. If I ask you, yeah, I trust the Lord. But don't just say you trust the Lord. Really trust the Lord. With not just some of your life, but all of your life. Not with just some of your heart, all your heart. What does Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say? Trust in the Lord with some of your heart. No. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. We don't trust a God who is not committed to us. We trust a God who is fully committed to us. So when things don't make sense, even in the darkest of valleys of suffering, we can trust him because he's fully committed to us. We talked a lot about all these different things. And I think what the Lord would say tonight is consider me. Consider me. The encouragement in Hebrews chapter 12 is, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, lest you be weary and discouraged in your soul. You may not be weary and discouraged in your soul today, but tomorrow you might be, or the next day you might be. What's the antidote? Considering Jesus. The garden, this story, is just the prequel to the cross, but even in the garden we see Christ's overwhelming love for us. Let's receive that love. Let's be dispensers of that love. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to continually consider you. Lord, be on the forefront of our hearts and our minds. We ask that Jesus would make himself known to us in in every single way possible. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus' obedience. We wouldn't be here today if if Jesus wasn't obedient. So we, we honor him, we praise him, and we ask that we would be a part of giving him glory. Lord, thank you in the garden you identify with our weaknesses and you identify with pain. Lord, for those in the room who have that pain and that anguish of soul, would they look to you and be comforted by the Holy Spirit? I pray, Jesus, as we transition into a time of communion, that our hearts would continue to be sensitive to you, that we would deeply remember you, and, and, and at that remembrance of who you are, fully commit our lives to you. Reveal areas in our life, Lord, that we're not surrendered just yet, and make us willing to be willing to give it all to you. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray and say, amen.